Well, good morning, church. Good morning, everyone. If you have a Bible with you, go ahead and grab that right now. We're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. I want to welcome those of you watching online as well. would love for you to have your Bibles open as well. As we continue our teaching series called Forward, Living and Loving Like Jesus in a Post-COVID World. Before we turn to the text today, I want to get us thinking about this by asking you a question. And it's a question I've been mulling over over the last several months, really over the last 14 months, as this pandemic has hit us and it's changed so much of life as we know it. Here's the question I want to begin with this morning. It's this, what do we do when the world begins to fall apart? 14 months ago, the world as we knew it began to change. Things got bizarre and weird and then lasted longer than we thought. The world, as we knew it, began to fall apart. And here's my question. What do we do when the world begins to fall apart? Now, I want to let you know this morning, I am not interested in your politically correct answer. I am not interested in the answer you think you should say. I'm not interested in the answer that sounds nice to the people around you. I'm interested in the actual answer to that question. And as you would have it, the data is actually in on that question. What did we as a culture, what did we as a people, what did we as Americans do over the last 14 months as the world began to fall apart. Here's at least part of the answer in this data set. Here's what we learned. Cable news viewing, which is well known for mental health and balanced perspectives on the world, is up 57%. And that's down, of course, from 147% that it was up in the fall. The use of Twitter, which is, of course, the cesspool of all angry, bitter people in the world who have something to say is up 20% to a record number of users. Facebook, which used to be pleasant pictures of people's vacations and your grandchildren, and is now not that, is up 53%. Netflix, the streaming service, has added 25 million users. Get this, alcohol purchases in the last 14 months are up 243%. Recent surveys showed that 61% of Americans experienced unwanted or undesired weight gain out of boredom snacking from the pandemic. You've all heard of the freshman 15 where you go off to college. They're now talking about the COVID-19. All right. Um, Amazon, the the largest web retailer in the world, their profits increased 200% in the last year. And I could go on and on and on, give you examples and data sets and points for us to understand. But here's the temptation. The temptation, even as I share that, is to go, are you kidding me? This is how much people are using their phones and watching things online and the food and the alcohol they're consuming. But then here's what I just have to be like honest with myself about. I have to think about my own patterns, my own life. It's actually for me on Sunday mornings. I don't know if you get this, but on Sunday mornings, my phone gives me a little report on my screen time on the last week. And I don't know if it's Sunday mornings for you. Maybe the Lord just has Sunday mornings for me because I'm usually in church. It was actually during the 9 a.m. service. I was sitting right there about to come up to preach and it gave me my report for the week and I just feel this sinking feeling inside of me. And then I repent and like confess to the Lord and have all these mixed emotions going on. But it's true for me. It's true for me that I found myself snacking on all kinds of things in the last last year that I never meant to do. I just kind of mindlessly went through this. It's true for me with the television I've watched. It's true for me in a thousand different areas. And it's probably true for you as well. But as you look back over the 14 months, the last 14 months, we would love to answer this question. What do we do when the world begins to fall apart with answers like, I would call my loved ones. I would get my affairs in order. 
I would get right with God. I would make sure my life was everything it wanted to be. But that's not actually the answer that has been given to us over the last 14 months. If you want to know the actual answer that Americans have given by their behavior over the last 14 months to this question, it comes in three words, three very depressing words. What do we do when the world begins to fall apart? Three words. We consume things. That's what we did. We consume things. And not just people out there, those terrible people. I'm assuming this is true of the people in here, of the people watching online this morning. See, we consume things. We took things in. Food and alcohol and news and politics and internet content just over and over and over again, taking that into our lives, taking that into our bodies. And this morning, I want us to think about that carefully. I want us to be believers who think about the patterns and practices and behaviors and habits that are forming in our life because of the last 14 months. I want us to see this thought clearly this morning, that in a post-COVID world, you must decide how you will consume the world, or the world will consume you. You must, as a follower of Jesus, decide how you are going to consume the things of the world, or the patterns and practices and values of this world will consume you, including your faith. This morning, I want us to think deeply about how we consume the things of the world, the patterns and the practices we found ourselves into. That's where we show up in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, uh, and we're going to start here in verse 12. It's going to say these words. Paul writes, I have the right to do anything, you say. Now, what you'll notice if you're reading um, in this translation, which is the NIV, and it's true in a lot uh, of modern translations, they'll put quotation marks around, I have the right to do anything, In other words, what Paul is suggesting is this is a statement, a phrase that you, the Corinthians, have been saying, I have the right to do anything. Now, you might wonder where a statement like that comes from. Where do they get off saying, I have the right to do anything? And here's what I believe has happened here. They're starting to say this phrase because the Corinthians have heard the gospel message from Paul. And if you're new here this morning to church or haven't been in a long time, or if you're listening online and you're not even sure you're a Christian, I want you to understand the heart of what the Christian gospel, the Christian message is. See, the Christian message is not be a good boy or a good girl and God will love you. The Christian message is that you were not a good boy. You were not a good girl. You did nothing right. And yet because of his grace and mercy, God sent Jesus into the world to save you and rescue you through the cross, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's the gospel. So that when you call on the name of Jesus to save you, he saves you out of 100% his work and 0% yours. So that means at least two things for us this morning and what it meant for the Corinthians. Number one, there's nothing you can do to earn your salvation. Zero things. God saves you, not you. God rescues, not you. It's God's work, not yours. Number one, nothing you can do to earn your salvation. And number two, because there's nothing you can do to earn your salvation, nothing you can do to lose your salvation either. Meaning you are firmly in the hand of God. You are rescued and saved and secure. Not because you hold on to God, but because God holds on to you. He holds you in the palm of his hand. And the Corinthians heard that message. And they heard that message and they did what so many people, when they hear the gospel message, do. They took that truth that you cannot lose your salvation because you did not earn your salvation. And they turned it into a license to do what they wanted to do. Here's their phrase. Well, if there's nothing I can do to earn or lose my salvation... I have the right to do anything. And Paul, in this text, is going to affirm that you have not earned your salvation. You cannot lose your salvation. And yet he is going to spend the rest of the text that we're going to look at this morning responding to this statement, responding to this idea. Listen, this morning I need you to remember 
that there's nothing you did to earn your salvation, nothing you can do to lose your salvation. But that does not mean it doesn't matter how you live. And Paul is going to make that point forcefully in the text. Again, in verse 12, he says, I have the right to do anything, you say. But then he goes on to say this, but not everything is beneficial. So in other words, here's the phrase they're saying, and then he uses that word, but. He goes, let me correct you there, because not everything in your life is beneficial. Not everything you do is beneficial. Not every behavior or pattern or practice or habit in your life is beneficial. This morning, as we think about the last 14 months, and the contention I've made, and what I've tried to show you, that our response has been to consume things, I want us to think about consumption, and I want us to think about it in light of the principle Paul is laying down here. If I could describe the principle this way, it would be this, that we have to learn to limit our consumption only to that which is actually beneficial. That when we think about your use of your phone or alcohol or food or news or media or shopping or anything else in this world, we want to learn to limit our consumption as followers of Jesus to only that which is actually beneficial with the assumption being that there is a level, there is a degree of consumption that can actually be not beneficial to your life, but harmful to your life. But here's the problem. The problem is that when I say you should only consume that which is actually beneficial, there is a deep problem in your heart, and it is the same problem that exists in my heart, and that is the fact that we are terrible, terrible at recognizing whether things we're doing are actually beneficial or not. It's like this. There was a a movie with Liam Neeson where he said these words. He said, I have a very particular set of skills that I've developed over a very long career. And you and me have a very particular set of skills that we have developed over the course of our entire life. And that is the skills that you and I have developed to justify our own behavior, to show why what we're doing is not actually a problem. It may seem like a problem, but it isn't actually that. I like to put it this way, that you are an expert, a world-class expert at justifying your own behavior. Don't you ever see that? How good you are at looking at someone else's patterns and practices and behaviors and going, that doesn't look so healthy or good. But then you're amazing at showing why you're actually okay doing the very same things that you think they shouldn't do. So how do we get past that? How do we get past the blindness we tend to have toward ourselves when it comes to our consumption, our habits, our behaviors, and our practices? And the answer for that is we use to our advantage the fact that we can always see it in others. And we ask ourselves questions like this. Would I recommend that my best friend have the same patterns that I have? Would I recommend that my daughter or my grandson or my spouse or the person I work most closely with, would I recommend they have the same patterns I have? Well, like, let's say one of the patterns you have in your life is you just watch way too much television. And I don't mean like TV's bad, never watch it. I just mean for some of you, you know that TV is this overwhelming presence in your life. It's hours and hours per day. Would you recommend that your best friend, that your daughter, that your grandson have that same kind of pattern in their own life? And if you go, no, I I don't want them doing what I do. That's a problem to address. Let's get a little more personal. Let's talk about alcohol. If you find yourself in a place where you are drinking seven out of seven days of the week, you can't watch a ball game or enjoy time with friends without alcohol. You're actually drinking in private or away from your family or your friends so they don't see how much you're consuming. If your best friend told you they were doing that, you would be worried for them. You'd be concerned for them. Why? Because we're terrible at seeing unhealthy, destructive patterns in our own life. But we're actually quite good at seeing in other people's lives. So here's the question to assess. Would I recommend that my best friend have the same patterns that I have? 
So that's what Paul's going to try to unpack for us here. He's going to try to unpack the patterns and practices and behaviors and habits of our life. He goes on to say it a little more forcefully in this next verse. He says this. He says, I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. Again, he's responding to this phrase. He's responding to this quote that the Corinthians have. I have the right to do anything, but he's going to contrast that with a command, with a statement, a statement of seven words, and it's the seven words I want you to memorize this morning. It's the seven words if you go home and someone asks, what was the sermon about today? I want you to say these seven words. I will not be mastered by anything. I will not be controlled by anything. I will not be mastered by anything. Now, now in the context of 1 Corinthians 6, Paul is going to be talking about sexual sin, egregious sexual sin within the church. And I believe that's true. I believe we are called not to be mastered by the sin and wickedness and evil of this world. Sexual sin and lying and pride and anger and gossip and all the rest. We should not be mastered by that. But, but one of the things I always want to push us toward when we read the Bible is to look not just at what the Bible is saying, but to recognize what the Bible is not saying. Let me show you what I mean. It does not say here, I will not be mastered by sin. It doesn't say, I will not be mastered by evil. It certainly includes sin and includes evil, but it says, I will not be mastered by anything. Which tells me that the burden for us when we read these seven words, I will not be mastered by anything, is that we would say, no, 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 we're not going to be mastered by sin, but we're also not going to be mastered by the good blessings that God has given us that if we're not careful, it can take over. And that's what I want to spend some time thinking about with you this morning. I want to talk for the next few minutes about six blessings, six good things in your life, six things that are part of a normal human life that can be a good, healthy thing in your life. And yet if you are not careful, these six things can take over in your life. They can become your master. I'm going to talk about six things. The first thing I want to talk about is this. I want to suggest to you that we would have this heart, have this mindset that I will not be mastered by food. By food. Now, this may seem like an odd one to start with because food is necessary. You have to eat. It's not like you can put it on the shelf and say, I'm never going to do that. But I will not be mastered by food. Here's where we see this most clearly. We see this most clearly in, in the pain and the difficulty and the weight that some people in your life and mine walk through when it comes to eating disorders. And we see the pain of an eating disorder, how that can just wreck and ruin and consume an entire life. And I don't want to be naive enough in a crowd this size, even with those watching online, that there might be people walking through an eating disorder right now. Maybe you have walked with one and you're in recovery. Maybe you're in the throes of it now. Or even worse, it's present in your life. You just haven't had the ability to even say it out loud or the courage to find help yet. So listen, there are eating disorders that can take over life. But let us not for a moment be naive enough to think that only those who have eating disorders can be mastered by food. Because here's my concern. I just want to be super clear. I mentioned earlier unwanted or undesired weight gain throughout the pandemic. My concern is not weight gain. My concern is not health. My biggest concern in talking about food for you is not what you weigh or how healthy or in shape you are. As important as those things can be, my biggest concern for you is actually when you use food to do things that food was never intended to do. When you put it in a place in your life that it was never meant to sit. You see, early in the pandemic, most of you will remember when we were at home and everything was kind of scary, right? Like now we're kind of at this point where we kind of understand a little more. But back in March and April of last year, Everything felt tense. We were at home. There was a lot of anxiety and a lot of fear. And here's what happened for so many people, maybe even including you. 
You started to consume food, not because you were hungry, but because you were trying to numb the fear, numb the anxiety. You were asking food to fill a hole in your life as a peace giver, as a comfort giver. We even have a phrase for that, right? We call it comfort food. What are we asking food to do? We're asking food to numb the anxiety, numb the fear, to step into a place it was never meant to step. That food is not just something we eat when we're hungry. It has all sorts of emotional tie-ins. And if we're not careful, it can take over our life. Again, to be clear, this is not about you gaining or losing weight or being in shape. It's about food taking a place in your life that it was never meant to take. And Paul says, not that I just won't be mastered by sin, but I won't be mastered by anything. So I'm not going to be mastered by food. The second thing I want to talk to you of six is I will not be mastered by shopping. Okay, shopping is not a bad, wicked, terrible, awful thing. Shopping can even be a good thing, right? You need to buy groceries for your family. You need to buy clothes for your kid. You need to buy things in this world. Uh, And yet, I just want to bring us back again to the beginning of the pandemic. Uh, Like, remember the beginning of the pandemic? The big scary thing was the grocery stores just had empty shelves. Remember that? Just empty shelves. And it wasn't just toilet paper. That was the thing that was like being talked about. But remember the first couple of weeks walking through and there was no meat, there was no bread, there was no nothing on the shelves. So you're just kind of walking through going like old salsa. I'll take it, right? You just take anything. And we did that. Why did we do that? Because we got into a scarcity mindset and scarcity mindset says, if there's something, I'll buy it. If the getting's good, I'm going to get it because it might not be there next week. And that may have been the appropriate response at the time. But you know what the scary thing is? Some of us have taken that scarcity mindset and rolled it for another 14 months when we didn't need to. And so what you've done is you've just bought things and purchased things and tried to get things. And anytime there was something, anytime there was something on the shelf, you got it and you bought it and you've hoarded things. And shopping has become this way of you controlling the world. Like if you remember early on, you would be promised two-day shipping online and you were lucky if you could get it in two months, right? So this is what we did. We just, we're like, okay, if I just buy it now, maybe I'll need it later. And here's my concern. My concern is that you are using shopping to fill a hole it was never meant to fill in your life, to soothe the ache and the pain of this world because it's not the new shirt or the new car or the new couch you want. It's a new you. You just don't have the courage to say that yet. And so we become these consumers. You know, from time to time, people talk about America as a materialist country. Materialism being the idea that we'll be happy once we have a lot of stuff. But I'm not convinced that's the case. I'm not convinced America, the the air we breathe, the culture we live in, that we breathe in every day is a materialist country. No, I'm convinced we are a consumerist country. See, materialism says I will be happy if I have a lot of stuff. Consumerism says I will be happy if I have new stuff. And that's what a lot of us have fallen into. That shopping has just become this thing we consume without even thinking and we justify why we need it. And if you're not careful, it can take over. Again, Paul does not say I will not be mastered by sin. He says I won't be mastered by anything. Won't be mastered by food, won't be mastered by shopping. Listen, three, I will not be mastered by alcohol. By alcohol. I want to be clear what my position is, what I see in the scriptures. I believe Christians have liberty to consume alcohol. There are some Christians who disagree with me, and I understand and respect that. I just see in the scriptures that there is liberty to consume as long as we're not getting drunk and as long as we're not violating the laws and drinking underage. So I believe you have liberty to do that. My big concern, though, is not that you would take a drink, it's that the drink would take you, okay? That's my concern. And if it's true that alcohol sales are up 247%, it means that someone here is drinking more alcohol, right? We're not just buying it and putting it in a shelf. We're drinking it. That's a problem to think about. See, it's easy to think about alcohol taking over and to think that just means alcoholics in a 12-step group. And listen, alcoholics in 12-step groups, we believe that is prevalent. It's an issue. And maybe more people need to be in recovery than actually are. But that's not my deep concern for all of you. 
My deep concern is for those of you when you're stressed out and need to take the edge off and overwhelmed with life, you turn to alcohol rather than the scriptures. That you turn to your cabinet rather than dropping to your knees. My, my big concern for some of you is that you can't go a day or two or a week or two without alcohol, that you can't watch a ball game without a drink, that you can't get together with your friends without drinking. And if anyone asked you to stop drinking, you would take that as a big offense in your life. My concern is that alcohol can take over even if you'll never call yourself an alcoholic, even if you can function, even if you can operate in this world. My concern is that all of us would say, I will not be mastered by alcohol. Talk about food, we talk about shopping, talk about alcohol. Can we talk about social media? Um, we can all be clear on this. The data's in, right? Social media is not helping us. It's not that it has no place in your life. It's not that everyone must delete it. It's that we need to be aware that it is not this like nice little platform where we get a free service. It is this algorithmically designed thing to suck your attention and radicalize you in every way. The data's in on that. And we need to be clear on that. And listen, again, this isn't a delete your social media, like, like go off the internet, go hide in a cave. Like that's not what we're doing here. But I want us to be clear that social media, if we are not careful, can have a power over us. Well, like, let me put it this way. If you've not been able to get through the church service so far without checking social media, it might be in control in your life. Sorry, <laughs> had to say it. Like, listen, if you can't get through a dinner with your family or friends without checking your phone, if you can't hang out with people without having your phone out, or some of us do this where you have the phone out, but we turn it upside down because we're respectful, right? Like, that's what we do. It's a problem. Like, can I just say boldly in this room, I think this device for some of us has mastered us. It owns us. It controls us. And as Christians, the call is not just I won't be mastered by sin, it's I won't be mastered by anything. And this morning, I just want to plead with you not to throw away your phone, not to shut off the power in your house or become a hermit. That's not the call in your life. The call of God on your life is to say, I won't be mastered by anything, including and up to social media. I want us to be aware of that. I won't be mastered by food. I won't be mastered by shopping, by alcohol. Won't be mastered by social media. Next, I won't be mastered um, by news and politics. I won't be mastered by news and politics. For some of you, you wake up in the morning and the first thing you do is you check the news, you check Twitter, you see what's going on in the world. A few hours later, you check again just to see who you're supposed to be mad at today because someone said something that made you mad. And then just throughout the day, it's just this constant churn of all of the things bad happening in the world. You ever notice the news isn't like wonderful things are happening all about? You ever notice the news is always, here's everything wrong with the world, right? And some of us just get owned by that. We get owned by the news and then listen, we get owned by politics because the news whips us up into this place where we think the people who disagree with us are our enemies. And if you have fallen into a place where you will not talk with someone or be friends with them or be in fellowship with them because they voted for a Democrat or voted for a Republican, the news owns you. It owns you. Politics owns you. If your entire friendship, if your entire life, if your entire way of being is shaped by whether or not politics perfectly aligns with you. Because listen, if you got into the place where you're only friends with the people who agree with you politically, the news champions, the people who own the news companies are laughing all the way to the bank and the politics, politicians are getting exactly what they want. Like, do not let it own you. We will not be a people who get mastered and owned by the news and politics. And then final one I want to mention is that I will not be mastered by dating and by romance. So um, I know in this room, there's a lot of married folk, um, but I also know there's a lot of single people here in this room, listening online. I work with tons of them in our high school or young adult ministry. Uh, and here's what can really quickly happen with dating and romance. Um, dating and romance, again, is this good, healthy blessing from God. But what can quickly happen is you can kind of get addicted to dating. Like you're with one person and that doesn't work out. So you try the next person and you just kind of keep going serial dating from person to person to person. 
And I've seen far too many young ladies who date someone that they have no business being with. It's a toxic, abusive, unhealthy relationship, but they would rather be in a bad relationship than be in no relationship at all. Or I see young men who get in a relationship they have no business being in. It's not making them more like Jesus, but they would rather be in that relationship than have to deal with their own thoughts, their own issues, and their own insecurities. Like this is my deepest concern for folks who are just using relationships to try to fill a hole in their life. Isn't that relationships are bad? It's not that dating is wrong. It's that my concern is they have a picture in mind. And the picture so many young single people or even older single people have in mind is this one. If I just get married, all of my problems will go away. And every married couple goes, nope, right? We know this. And yet this is the call. I will not be mastered by anything. So, so here's why I bring all these things up. Here's why I bring these things up in church this morning. This is this simple principle that if you do not notice your patterns, you will eventually become a slave to them. If you don't notice the things you're doing, if you don't notice what's happened over the last 14 months, if you don't notice what the pandemic has pushed you into, you will eventually become a slave to them. And this is Paul's seven words. Again, what's the sermon about? I will not be mastered by anything. Good things, bad things, wicked things, wonderful things. I will not be mastered by anything. He goes on this way in verse 13. He says, food for the stomach and stomach for the food, but God will destroy them both. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. Now, again, Paul's going to be quoting the Corinthians here, and they have this saying. Here's the saying in ancient Corinth. Food for the stomach, stomach for the food. Oh, go back, go back. Go back on. Food for the stomach, stomach for the food, and God will destroy them both. This is the saying in ancient Corinth. And you've probably never heard anyone say this saying before, right? Like you've never heard someone walking down the street like, food for stomach. Like that's not a thing. It's not a jingle in our time. And yet here's what I want to present to you. If I can paraphrase what the ancient Corinthians were saying, I think you will immediately recognize that it is something that is said in our time and in our culture as well. So here's what they're saying. I have a stomach. I should eat food. Food is for the stomach, stomach's for the food. If I have an urge, I should give into it. Here's what they're saying. Here's the paraphrase. It's that you are nothing more than an animal controlled by biological functions. That is the phrase. That's the saying. That you are nothing more than an animal controlled by biological functions. And if you pay attention to our culture, our secular godless culture, that is what people are saying. You are just a product of evolution. You are chemical reactions happening. There's no meaning. There is no purpose. There is no soul. You just give in to whatever you have because you are nothing more than a very smart, advanced animal. That is what is being said in our culture. And listen, that's not a dig at secular, progressive, uh, or secular, atheistic people. That is not a dig. That The secular ethos is actually claiming this. Well, let me put it this way. So there is um, an atheist, one of what they call the four horsemen of the new atheists, named Christopher Hitchens. And Christopher Hitchens is is now deceased. He passed away from from a really brutal bout of cancer. And during that time, he was recording his thoughts and reflections on that in a book that was published. And what he was reflecting on is when he was in the hospital with cancer and it was coming close to the end, his doctors would be treating him and his doctors would say something that doctors say to us. They would say, you know what, Christopher, your, your body is rejecting the medication. They'd say, your body is shutting down right now. Your body is not responding well. Your body is starting to collapse. Your body is starting to waste away. And eventually he becomes so frustrated with this because in his worldview, he doesn't understand or he doesn't appreciate what they're saying. And here's what he snaps and says. He eventually says this. He says, I don't have a body. I am a body. I don't have a body. I am a body. This is the godless secular worldview. 
You are just a body. You are just chemicals. You are just urges. You are just the byproduct, the accidental byproduct of evolution, and there is nothing more to you. See, the ancient Corinthians and the new atheists agree on this point, that I don't have a body. I just am a body. It's all I am. So if I want to eat, I should eat. If I want to sleep, I should sleep. If I'm feeling up to it, I should have sex. If I'm, if I'm thirsty, I should drink. If I'm hungry, I should eat. If I'm bored, I should look at my phone. If I have a moment, I should watch TV. Whatever urge happens inside of me, I should give into it because I don't have a body. I just am a body. But I want you to understand this morning, and I hope you understand that the Bible has a different view on this. See, the Bible's view is not that you are just this collection of urges and you should give in to every urge you have inside of you. The Bible is going to say something different. The Bible is going to teach that I have a heart, a mind, a soul, and a body, and most importantly, the capacity to choose. We can choose. We can decide. We don't have to give in to the worst impulses inside of us. We don't have to give in to any impulses inside of us. We are not just a set, a collection of chemicals firing in our brain, creating the fantasy of reality. We are people created in God's image, given the capacity to choose. That's true in your life. And let let me just help you understand what we're going to try to do here at Calvary as we emerge from the pandemic. And what we have always been doing here at Calvary is to try to help people decide how they're going to live their lives in a way that honors God and leads to the fullness of life Jesus promised for us. So he's here at Calvary. That's been flourishing for years. And there's been many ways that plays out. And one of the principal people who is driving that, this capacity to choose we have, this capacity to choose healthy patterns over destructive, unhealthy patterns is a pastor here named Steve Day. Steve Day is our care pastor. He's the one who helps us kind of understand how people can choose healing and recovery and support and all of the different things we need to choose coming out of unhealthy, toxic seasons of our life, including perhaps the last 14 months. Um, Steve shared a little bit this week about um, his own life and his own ministry and his own story, and most importantly, what Calvary is doing here. I want you to take a moment to enjoy this video by Pastor Steve Day. Hi, my name is Steve Day. I'm the care pastor at Calvary, and uh, my family and I came to Calvary 20 years ago. In 1985, we went to Moorpark, California, to start a brand new church. And the first week we were there, uh, we received a card in the mail, and the card was from Pastor Larry DeWitt. He was, you know, the founding pastor of Calvary Community Church, then the senior pastor of Calvary. And in that card, it said, we hear you're starting a church in Moorpark, and we want you to know that we're praying for you. Uh, Enjoy the adventure. And we thought, what an encouraging thing. We didn't know him, he didn't know us. 16 years later, Larry calls me on the phone, and and we'd done some things in the community together during that time, but uh, he said, hey, um, I wanna ask you if you would go to the Lord and just ask him if it's time for you to move into another ministry because you're such a shepherd and uh, we might be able to use your gift mix here in Calvary's care ministry. And uh, so I told my wife about the phone call and she said, well, what are you gonna do, Steve? And I said, well, I'm not gonna do anything. I'm gonna keep being faithful here at the church we're at. And she laughed at me and she said these words. She said, how much more in your face does God need to get? And I said, what? And she said, I've been praying for you for nine months that God would move you into a place where you could really use your best gifts. 
20 years ago, came over to Calvary. And we love this church. And uh, we have four kids, three girls and one boy. And they're all young adults now. And they've grown up here, really. It's, it's a joy to be a part of the family of God here that cares deeply about family ministry. And we've been blessed. Uh, we love doing care ministry at this church, helping people uh, focus their attention on the person of Jesus Christ for his healing and his hope. In this last year, we've seen some devastating things happen in people's lives as they have turned back to some old patterns that have not been good for their lives or, or reached out forward with some negative patterns. And people that um, have consumed alcohol and drugs, and uh, we've seen their, their homes blown up, their marriages blown up. We've seen people uh, turn to pornography and wreck their marriages. And uh, these things are real and alive and active uh, today. All the addictions are. But anything that we try to use to numb our senses that doesn't press us forward toward this relationship that we need to have with Jesus and He wants to have with us, I promise you will wreck your life. Uh, this whole idea of seclusion, um, we certainly have been locked down because of a virus, but when we tuck deep inside ourselves and we don't connect with people and connect with other relationships, it hurts us because a lot of the stuff we've dealt with the last year kind of brings us to the place uh, we might get depressed, uh, anxious. Uh, we get into this big, deep, dark hole People with depression talk about this, where we feel like it's so dark and, and we just simply can't get out. Life's not ever gonna be good again. And we start believing that stuff, and those are lies, um, because there is hope. I believe we find hope and healing in the person of Jesus Christ. But we do that through relationship. God has created us to be in relationship, to love and be loved and to know and be known. And so if you feel like you have no hope, let me encourage you to reach out, uh, call the church, call the care center. It's about building good disciplines, uh, good patterns that help us focus on the person of Jesus Christ and, and what Jesus wants to do for us in helping us be healthy. Jesus said, come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened. You know, he said, and I'll give you peace. It's so many promises, I'll give you rest, I'll give you strength, I'll give you a future, I'll give you grace, I'll give you freedom. Um, we want you to be healthy emotionally, physically, spiritually, and we're committed to helping you do just that. Uh, our kids, are from children's ministry through students and young adults, uh, they need to be with other children and students and young adults. And they need to be in that healthy, positive relationship where they're learning about the Lord and learning that He wants to be there everything during a very difficult time. Uh, the support and recovery groups at this church from, you know, grief share and pornography and just a number of different things, they're available. The resource library to help you find that right place, whether it's at this church or in the community, we would love to help you uh, with that. Calvary Cares. Let me say it again, Calvary cares. We care about our people and we care about the Caneo Valley and, and reaching people for Jesus Christ. There are a lot of different places you can go to try to get help, but when you come to Calvary, uh, we, we crack the book, we open the book and everything we do, His Word encourages us and it strengthens us. 
Our Grief Share program at Calvary is a Christ-based program. Everything we do in care ministry, in small groups, uh, our young adult ministry is, is a movement. It's such a great ministry where they go to God's Word and they encourage you and teach you how to develop good patterns in your life. I'll tell you, I love our church and, uh, and, and I love the body of believers at this place. And let me encourage you, uh, we say, to get connected. Uh, I say to be in relationship because when we're in relationship, we're encouraged and we're challenged and we move forward. Find a group, uh, a small group, a discipleship group, recovery group, a support group, whatever that group is. Don't, don't run from God during this time. Run to God. So grateful for Pastor Steve Day. He's a friend, an encourager, and a blessing to our church in so many ways. And I love when he said at the end there, find a group. There's no particular group. There's no thing we're trying to drive everyone into. It's just lean in somewhere. Find a group, a support group, a discipleship group, a small group, a ministry team. Be involved in this. Because if I've talked about something that's touched a nerve for you this morning, if I've talked about something that's made you feel like I need to change, the worst thing you could do is try to do it on your own. There's other people who want to walk this journey with you, be on the journey with you, and help you live in love like Jesus. And so don't do this alone. Lean in with a group. Be a part of something going on at Calvary. I know so many of you are in small groups and other groups, and that's wonderful. If you're not, lean in with that. Be a part of something going on here at Calvary to help you find hope, to help you find healing as we move forward out of this pandemic. And so on a program level, on like a church-wide level, I want to encourage you to find some way to plug in. But then on a personal level, I want to give you a tool as we close this morning. I want to give you a tool to help break some of the unhealthy patterns, practices, behaviors, and habits in your life from this last year. I want to give you this tool recognizing that the tool I'm about to talk about that comes in the form of a spiritual discipline is a tool that has been all but ignored in the Western church, has been all but forgotten about. But I need to tell you the tool I'm about to tell you about is ancient, it is biblical, it is powerful, and if you start to use it, I know that you will see spiritual fruit in your life. The tool I want to talk about this morning is the tool of fasting. Fasting. I want to talk to you about fasting this morning. I want to help you understand fasting. I know, again, for some of you, this is something you've heard about, maybe something you've seen, maybe even something you've dismissed out of hand. But I want to talk to you about fasting this morning in this way, that fasting is God's chosen tool. It's his chosen tool to break unhealthy patterns by periodically stopping consumption. I want to note that it's God's tool. It's God's idea. This isn't some new psychology thing. It's not intermittent fasting, some new thing that we've come up with in our culture. It's God's idea, and it's been around forever. It's God's tool to break unhealthy patterns. The unhealthy patterns of consumption we have talked about this morning that you might be feeling conviction about right now by periodically stopping consumption. So again, this is not the sermon that ends with now delete your social media forever or never drink alcohol again or, or never go shopping again. It's about stopping it. It's about tapping the brakes just for a moment so that you might break the unhealthy patterns in your life and emerge on the other side, deciding how you're going to behave and act rather than just going with the flow of what the last 14 months has given you. So I want to talk about fasting. I want to give you six specific fasts that you might consider as we close today. Six. Now listen, my assumption or my hope is not that you would do all six of these fasts. In fact, I do not think that would be advisable. 
Uh, this morning, I want to tell you six different fasts, and you might dismiss five of them as not needed or necessary for you, but there might be one that you go, know what? I need to put that into practice. I need to try that. I need to use this tool God has given me to break some unhealthy patterns I've gotten into over the last 14 months. Again, six fasts of varying durations. I'm going to give you all six. Here's number one, that you would stop eating food for one day. Biblically, fasting is almost entirely, but, but not exclusively, about food. It's about the people of God opting either as individuals or as a collective group of people to go without food. For usually, it's about one day, sometimes longer. Uh, I, I like a 24-hour fast sometimes if you're new to fasting, where you, let's say on Sunday night you eat dinner and you don't eat again until Monday night's dinner. You could also look at a 36-hour fast if you've never done that, where you eat dinner Sunday night, you don't eat all of Monday, and then Tuesday morning you break your fast with breakfast. This is the fast that God calls us to. This is a fast that was the normative tool for the people of God throughout all of history. And listen, I said it before, I'll say it again. Fasting is not about weight loss. Fasting is not about getting in shape. Fasting is not about shedding those unwanted pandemic pounds. That is not what we're doing here. So see, listen, fasting is not a fad. Fasting is not a tool for you to get in shape. Fasting is a spiritual discipline that merits spiritual fruit, that produces spiritual fruit in your life. I want to invite you, if you've never fasted before, to consider that and to see what God does through the mystery of fasting as you choose not to eat for one day. So the first fast is to not eat food for one day. The second fast is to stop consuming the news for one week. And I mean a hard line, no news, delete the news apps on your phone. Do not turn on cable news. If you're in the gym and it's on, you throw up the hand and go, I'm not watching this week. You stay off social media because that's just news now, right? You just decide one week, I'm not going to consume the news. Go do that and watch what happens to your mental health. Go do that and watch what happens to your peace. And if you're kind of in the line of like, well, if I don't watch the news, what if something serious happens? I promise someone will tell you in person. I promise someone will text it to you. Like if something serious happens, but here's the problem. Most of the time, it's not serious stuff happening. Most of the time, it's not a big deal. And the reason I know most of the time it's not a big deal is because if you're a news junkie, I promise you, you have no clue what happened two Tuesdays ago. You don't know because it wasn't that big of a deal. So what am I calling you to? Stop watching the news for one week and see what happens to your heart. And then on the other side of that, decide what space and place news gets in your life. Number one, stop eating for one day. Number two, stop watching the news for one week. Number three, stop buying anything for two weeks. A total spending freeze, meaning like total. So like put gas in your car before, go shopping for groceries before, and two weeks, you're not gonna buy anything. Not online, not in person, and just watch what happens as you drive by stores. You're like, I need to get a, oh wait, nope. You know, like just watch what happens. Watch what happens when you're online and you think, oh, I've always needed a new pair of, nope, nope, I'm not spending anything. And watch what happens to your heart when you start to break the grip that consumerism has on all of our lives. See, this is a fast you might consider. I'm just not going to spend anything for two weeks and see what happens. You fast from food for one day. You fast from the news for one week. You fast from purchasing anything for two weeks. Here's the fourth one. You stop drinking alcohol for one month. It's not that you're never going to drink again, although I think that might be advisable for some. But it's that you're not going to drink. It's May 2nd right now. What if you just decided I'm not drinking until June 2nd? Whatever role alcohol plays, I'm going to try to figure that out, but I'm not going to drink. I'm not going to be in on this. I'm not going to become the type of person that can't watch a baseball game or a football game without a beer. I'm not going to become the type of person who can't hang out with my friends unless we're cracking open some kind of alcohol. I'm going to put that on pause for one month. And listen, here's the problem. Every time you decide to do a fast like this where you say for one month, I'm not going to drink alcohol, there's always a wedding that's going to happen. 
There's always a birthday party. You'll survive. You'll be okay. And in fact, if you can't have fun at a wedding or at a birthday party without alcohol, that's a deeper problem to address too, right? Like, like this is what we're talking about. You put the brakes on and then you realize what place alcohol actually had in your life. You stop eating food for one day. You stop uh, watching the news for one week. Stop shopping for two weeks. You stop drinking alcohol for one month. Here's the next one. Stop using social media for six months. And I mean, just off. Delete Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. Yeah, we got some applause here going amen to this. But you just delete it. Okay, May, June, July, August, September, October. And here's the good news. You'll get back on in November. You'll see Thanksgiving, Christmas photos. You'll be fine. And you'll realize you didn't miss anything. You're gonna be all right. Again, it's not social media is bad. You should never use it. But for some of you, it's so consumed your life that a six-month break might be the best thing you ever did. Six months, you hit the pause button. And then here's the final one. Stop pursuing a relationship for one year. For one year. Now, married folk, that doesn't apply to you, okay? <laughs> it's not like, I'll stop pursuing my wife. All right, no, it doesn't apply to you. But, but if you are single, or, or even if you know someone who's single, and they've just kind of gone through the churn of dating, you might recommend this. Hey, just a one-year pause. I've been in the game. I'm going to sit on the sidelines for one year. I'm going to make sure I'm not just dating because I'm so afraid of being alone. I'm going to figure out who I am in Jesus. I'm going to get healthy. I'm going to get into the centered place. And then amazingly, what might happen is you might actually find the person and you might become the person who's ready to get married, ready to engage in a serious relationship. One year. So again, you stop eating food for one day. Stop watching the news for one week. You can stop buying anything for two weeks. Stop drinking alcohol for one month. Stop social media for six months. Stop looking into a relationship for one year. Maybe you have some other kind of fast you want to do that I didn't name. Spoke to someone last night who said, TV, you didn't name TV. I'm going to stop watching TV of any kind for one week because that's absorbing my life. Go find it. Go choose. It doesn't matter that you use my exact time frames or do it exactly as I said. Here's the principle that we do need to understand, though, when it comes to fasting and when it comes to the patterns in your life. Here's the principle that you can drift into unhealthy patterns, but you cannot drift out of them. And over the last 14 months, I believe a lot of us have drifted into unhealthy patterns, and you're never just going to wander out. You have to choose. You have to decide. And God has given you a tool to do that. It is the tool of fasting and you neglect it at your peril. You neglect it in a way that harms you. So again, I want to call us toward this. And then here's the final verse. And I need to read this final verse because if we don't get to this final verse, this will sound like a self-help sermon. And it'll sound like you can do it. You're strong enough. If you just decide and choose, and I'm like this motivational speaker and you feel all fired up. And then two days from now, you're like, I don't know. Like this verse matters. Here's what it says in verse 14. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. Like I said, the gospel message is the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ for our sins and for our salvation. But, but the great claim of the Christian faith, the great hope we look forward to one day, is just as the Spirit of God raised Jesus from the dead, so too he'll raise us. Like the resurrection of the dead, like we're going to die, but God's going to raise our bodies up. And why are we sure he's able to do that? Because the same power that raised Jesus from the dead lives inside of me and it lives inside of you. That Holy Spirit grave robbing power lives inside of your bones, child of God. That's why you have the power to do this. Like, like this is not a motivational sort of you versus your habits and behaviors and dysfunctions. If it's that, you lose every time. But listen, if it's you and the Holy Spirit of God every time, you win. 
You win because the Holy Spirit of God lives inside of you. The Holy Spirit of God gives you this dynamic power to move forward in the Christian life and not remain stuck. Like, let me put it to you this way. So in my home, just off my kitchen and living room, there's a little home office we have. And as part of that office, we installed these little uh, glass doors in the middle of it so you can kind of see through it. And both my children, despite the fact that it is a very boring office, love to play in the office. And so what they do is if the door is open, they'll kind of run in there. And I've got my three-year-old girl, but, but I especially want to talk about my one-year-old son because he'll run into the office and then he'll do what all one-year-old boys seem to love to do. And that is that he will close the door on himself. He'll shut the door and he feels so powerful because he pushes and the door shuts. But then... There's a marvelous scene that we get to see, and it is this scene right here. (laughs) Pressed up against the doors, let me out, let me out. And because I'm an awesome dad, the last time this happened, I snapped a picture. Um, I think about Noah all the time, my one-year-old baby boy. I think about this moment because he got himself into the situation, but he can't get himself out of the situation. He got himself into this little mess, but he can't figure out how to get out of this little mess. And he's crying and he's sobbing and he's devastated. And you know what it makes me think of? I wonder for some of you over the last 14 months, you've gotten yourself into a mess, a pattern, a behavior, a practice, something in your life where you just feel like you are stuck in some kind of rut. And if that's you this morning, if you're feeling the conviction of the spirit this morning going, I am stuck in a rut, what I want to close with are four words that I would say to my son and four words that I would say to you. It's the four words that as a child of God, you need to hear this morning. It is the four words that are true because the Holy Spirit of God lives in your bones. It is four words that give you hope. It is four words that give you confidence. It is the four words that you need to recognize are true about you because God's spirit lives inside of you. It's true for little Noah. It is true for you. Four words I want to stick in your brain this morning. You are never stuck. You're not stuck. You're never stuck. You feel stuck in your patterns and your sins and your addictions and your behaviors and all of the things you've been doing. You are not stuck. The Holy Spirit of God gives you the power to overcome anything. Greater is he who lives in you than anything or anyone that is in this world. Child of God, take courage this morning. You are not stuck. You are never stuck. And for the child of God to come out of this pandemic is to declare that whatever happened, whatever the reasons are, whatever I got messed up in, whatever I got twisted up in in this pandemic... I'm going to remember that I'm never stuck. And I'm going to declare as a banner over my life and over my family the seven words that this sermon is about this morning, that I will not be mastered by anything. Let's pray. Father in heaven. Father in heaven, thanks for this morning. Thanks for your word. Um, Thanks again that we get to turn to it and think about it and consider it deeply. Um, Father, I pray for anyone in this room who's just wrestling with something right now uh, and they're feeling a mixture of conviction and frustration and anger uh, and defensiveness or anything else they're feeling this morning. God, I just pray your Holy Spirit would speak clearly and that we, as your scriptures say, would not harden our hearts against your voice. May your Holy Spirit convict our hearts, move in us, change us. I pray the patterns and practices of the last 14 months would no longer be so for the families, for the individuals, even for God, us as a church. God, help us move forward. Help us not be mastered by anything, but help us worship in all things. The name of Jesus, the one who lives and dies and raises for our salvation and whose spirit lives in us. God, help us to be those kinds of people. We pray in Christ's name and all God's people said, amen. 